Thank you for listening into the next episode of Coffee Chronicles, Stories Over Coffee, brought to you by the Black Six Coffee Trading Company. We're a veteran-owned coffee company that roasts coffee from areas we provide humanitarian aid to. Through our nonprofit, the Black Six Project, we utilize the skills of veterans and first responders to bring aid around the world. We've traveled the world and sat with many people and heard their story. This podcast lets us share that story in our favorite way, over a cup of coffee. In this episode, we speak with Luis Carlos Sosa, founder of Cosecha Coffee Traders, a Colombia-based coffee company that sources its coffee from small lot indigenous farmers located in conflict areas in Colombia. He tells us his story of growing up in Fairfax, Virginia, and hearing the tales of his grandparents farming in Colombia. These stories stayed with him and eventually drew him back to Colombia to do different types of work. He founded his company to help out small lot farmers in getting their coffee export to different parts of the world. We recorded this interview with us in New York and with Lewis in Colombia. So grab your coffee mugs and pour yourself some coffee and listen in. Good morning and welcome to the next episode of Coffee Chronicles, Stories Over Coffee. I'm Joseph Zaleta from Black Six Coffee Trading Company. And today I have a guest from Colombia, Luis Carlos Sosa. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Joseph. Thank you for having me. Yes. So we're both up early. Uh, let's see. Well, being both coffee people, what are you drinking right now? Well, right now I'm drinking a very delicious coffee from Suarez Cauca. Um, it's one of the producers that, that we work with in that municipality. Um, it has chocolate notes, red berry notes, honey-like uh, after, after notes as well. <clears throat> it's a delicious coffee. It has a lot of character. Is it a wash process? This is a wash process coffee. Nice. Um, although he does do double fermentation. Mm-hmm. So he brings out those sweet, sweet notes uh, very well. <clears throat> yeah, and I'm drinking our one save espresso espresso with a uh, whole milk. I made it into a latte. Still working mm. on my uh coffee art, but our one save is a blend of Colombian and Brazilian. Nice okay, and sweet, cool. chocolatey, cocoa, not super dark espresso, but nice and sweet. Nice. Yeah. So our last interview was kind of like uh, had some technical difficulties, but I'd like to go back to uh, some of the topics we covered there. And, I, and you told me that we, a lot has happened also since that last recording. So we'd also like to catch up with that. But first, uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, yourself. Like, uh, where did you grow up? Okay, well, no, well, um, I was born in Arlington, Virginia. Grew up in, in Fairfax, Virginia which is Northern Virginia. And um, both my parents are Colombian. Um, my father grew up in, a, in an emerald mining town in central Colombia. And my mother was born in Bogota. Um, but her father, or my grandfather, was a coffee farmer and sugarcane farmer in Santander. Um, so growing up, we had, we heard a lot of stories about what life was like in rural areas of Colombia, based on the experiences that my father had, um, my grandfather, my mother, um, 
and you know stories about the the beautiful landscapes that there are um the customs that farmers have um you know the 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 violence that also existed back in those days <clears throat> excuse me between liberal and conservative parties um and you know a lot of it felt very close to home because uh, my father's family was actually uh, active in politics as as members of the liberal liberal party within a conservative state so um you know he would tell me a lot of stories about uh the harassment the attacks they would uh you know make on his family um bombings and killings and things like that but he would also tell me a lot about the positive things and i remember he would tell me a lot about uh like people and he had a a teacher that he learned a great deal of from and he told me about how the town butcher was actually like the doctor and the surgeon and how there was a, a man who didn't know how to read or write but he won like uh fireworks competitions in in China you know it's kind of like the stuff out of 100 years of solitude you know and so that contrasted greatly uh those images that that came through in, in those stories contrasted greatly with um with you know my environment in northern virginia you know which was you know it's it's flat there really aren't the mountains there that there are in 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 colombia and um you know there's there's a metro and uh, you know the roads are all paved um albeit i'm i'm speaking about um they would talk to me about you know 1950s rural colombia you know so it was a very different period in time different moment in history for the country and and in terms of development um it was notably different um so i my mother worked for the idb the inter-american development bank for a number of years and so we grew also grew up with a lot of contact with like internationally minded persons you know professionals who had gone to school in belgium or spain or france or england or all these places and they um you know they were latin american and worked were her coworkers and so we were exposed to like a very cosmopolitan um very international type of uh, uh environment and at the same time um it was also interesting because um we were there weren't that many latin americans or latinos in in virginia when i grew up you know that that um and now i'm i'm talking more about you know 1984 to 86 is when we actually started to see a lot uh, like a larger influx in the in the dc area of of immigrants coming in from central america um due to the unrest that occurred in those countries during that during that period of time you know it was a the cold war period where you know the united states and the soviet union were kind of like um facing each other and developing countries across the world and central america was affected from it 
So there was a large influx. And then later on, you saw um, another influx of Peruvian, the Peruvian community who's established themselves in, uh, in, in, in DC and then the Bolivians when they arrived. So there was, and, and most recently, like there is a lot more Colombian uh, migration as well, or diaspora in the DC hmm. area. I gotta say, in but it was 1985 was, like uh, was, when I, was when I came into the United States, and our first place that we lived in was in Fairfax, Virginia. So, oh, you're kidding me! One little small Filipino family. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. So the time Fairfax, frame is Virginia, pretty wow. familiar, and I didn't understand, I guess, at that time that all these other uh, families were migrating to the area. Yeah. yeah. Those were the Reagan years. Yes, they were. And I remember my mother telling me um, that when she, when she, she came, she went to the United States in 1964 and there was, she, she arrived in like the height of the civil rights movement basically, or during the civil rights movement. Um, and then all the way up, she, she arrived in Baltimore, which is a predominantly African-American city at, at, the, at the time, uh, with a lot of political unrest or a lot of social unrest. And then, um, you know, she ended up moving to McLean, Virginia. And when she moved there, um, she wouldn't hear, she, I mean, she learned English very quickly, um, which is actually why she she went to the United States was to learn English, to study English for a year. Um, and so, um, you know, she, she, uh, she would run and, and find people whenever they would speak Spanish. She would be like, Oh, where are you guys from? And we, we can't really like, it's crazy that you're speaking Spanish. Where are you from? And nowadays it's like, you know, yeah. everybody speaks Spanish in the DC area. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Know? So things have changed. The, the demographic has changed significantly since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, so growing up over there, when did you start, uh, I guess, uh, being drawn going to Colombia? Like what made you go and what, like, what were the first uh, times like? Yeah, it was definitely when my father passed away in 2000. 2004, um, he passed away from cancer. Um, and, you know, after him, he told me so much and taught me so much in life about, um, about his town, about Colombia, um, about uh, just life in general. I wanted to move to Colombia and, and kind of like experience it, witness it on my own. So, you know, um, I kind of chose to follow my, my, my heart, I guess. And, um, at the time after, after my father passed away, I, I thought, you know, it's time to, to go to school. Like I need to get my master's degree while he was alive. Um, I hadn't gotten my master's degree and, um, I was really interested in doing that because, you know, in the DC workplace or in the marketplace, you need to have at least a master's degree to be competitive, you know, mm -hmm. and, and attain like those, you know, good jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if you've studied international relations. So, um, so 
I, I did a master's in international peace and conflict resolution at American University. Also got a certificate in peace building. And I went to Colombia because I wanted to work for peace. Um, I wanted to help achieve peace. And um, in, in a way, kind of like uphold my dad's, my dad's legacy. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, I got an internship with the Colombian government, uh, the Department of National Planning. And I worked in the Justice and Security Division. And they were putting together um, kind of like the development plan for the country. I did a lot of that. Well, I worked in that. I didn't do like a significant amount of work. I was only an intern when I was there. But at the same time, um, you know, it was a very eye-opening experience. It was working with Colombians, uh, you know, for the first time, really. Um, in an all-Colombian environment, um, understanding the idiosyncrasies and, you know, the challenges of, like, the bureaucracy, you know, as such. And then, you know, just the experience of living in Bogota and uh, commuting in Bogota is just totally different from commuting from Northern Virginia to D.C., you know. Would you say it's, worse or better? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean... I don't know. I think traffic in Bogota is definitely like just like the worst. Okay. You know, so sometimes I would take the bus and then, you know, you have all the guys doing the shows on the buses and, and then you, it's just, it was just an, an experience. Every day going to work was, was an experience and or in returning home. You know? How long was your commute? No, it was about 30, 35 minutes. It was quite entertaining you know? to get there, huh? Oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So these kids aren't, that would perform in the buses, what would they do? Oh, there was, there were all kinds of things. Like you know, some people would rap mm-hmm. in Spanish. Uh-huh. Um, they would talk about you know a, a lot of people were actually see this. This is we're we're now talking like two thousand six. Two no, yeah, like two thousand six. So. In, in 2002, the government made like a big push to counter like the, the gorilla that was basically had surrounded Bogota. Um, maybe it sounds a little more dramatic than what it really was, but they were around Bogota in a nearby town, kind of like planning an attack on Bogota. And then later on, um, you know, it was, it was also, uh, you know, a hard line approach to countering uh, the guerrilla through military, a military effort. So what that created was a lot of conflict in rural areas where the guerrilla and other illegal groups were located, which caused displacement. You know, so large groups of, pers- of, of communities, entire communities and towns just uprooted and went to the city. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the people on the buses and it, on the traffic lights, kind of like offering goods and selling goods, were all displaced persons from a lot of these rural communities all over Colombia. Mm-hmm. And then you you got your you know your mimes and the clowns, and then you had you know just the average person just asking for money. You know, it wasn't every single bus, but it was there were definitely 
like the full blown like Bayonato music group mm-hmm. with an accordion, holy cow. big guacharaca, the drums. They would get on and just blast, you know. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it was fun. It was it was always entertaining. Never a it, dull moment in, in imagine Colombia, now that. that imagine now that everyone's just wearing headphones. <laughs> imagine trying to get the uh, being one of those bands trying to get the attention of everyone wearing headphones now. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. Or everybody with face masks now. <laughs> okay, yeah. so uh, now, how did you really get into coffee? So, um, the way I got into coffee, um, I don't know, I kind of feel like I got into coffee because uh, it's my calling. To be totally honest with you, you know. Um, so, during some periods of my life, I'd, I'd been away from you know, during all, all this whole story takes place between DC and, and, uh, and Colombia, Bogota. Mm-hmm. And at one point I met a, a girl, fell in love and we chose to live in Washington. Um, she didn't get used to Washington. Mm-hmm. So she wanted to come back. And when she came back, uh, we were already married. And we already had uh, two boys. And so, you know, we ended up, she ended up moving to, to back to her city, which is Cali. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and working there, working here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, while she came back, I stayed in Washington working for an NGO. And, um, you know, implementing social programming in different countries in the Americas. And then, you know, learned a great deal um, and chose to, to move back to, to Colombia and be with my wife and kids. Um, and then when I returned, you know, I'd, it had been about a year and a half um, since I was with them. And then, um, you know, a, a friend of mine called me out of the blue one day. And he's like, hey, man, I know that you're back in the country. Um, our technical writer just left the project that I'm working on, which was a USAID-funded project. Um, and we need, we need somebody to, do, to write the reports and do all of the technical writing. And he, you know, the, the job was in Bogota. And I said, well, I just got back to the country. And, you know, I had to... Um, I, I'm kind of like enjoying being with my, fa- my wife and kids. So it was really difficult to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you need to earn some money and you need to work. And unfortunately, in, in my career, um, which is international relations and international development, um, they the jobs are in Bogota for the most part. Mm-hmm. So I ended up taking on the job um, and I began to travel to a bunch of different regions of Colombia that I'd never thought I'd go to mm-hmm. um, for a number of reasons. One, one was definitely because there were conflict zones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this program, you know, I worked in, in Nariño, Tumaco, and then in, in Antioquia and Cordoba. 
which is up up north, a little further north. Um, and you know, and and the the irony of this whole situation was that I didn't necessarily want to come back to to Colombia. And the reason for that was because I'd already worked with the government. I tried to contribute the best I could and just came to the conclusion that the government is ineffective, um, is totally uh, bureaucratized, um, and has a lot of corruption. And so it was totally disheartening when I returned and, and thinking like, you know, how idealistic and how naive was I to think that I was going to like help bring peace to Colombia, you know, this is like a recent college grad thinking that. So it's also, I guess it's normal to think that and yeah, be, to be that idealistic. You're still motivated and, you know, young and right. wanting to change right. the world. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, and would so, you be able to give us a little bit more detail about like when you say conflict zones? Like, what do you do yes. with conflict zones? Right. So the, so the Colombian government, through all of its agencies, um, had prioritized certain areas of the country that were kind of like uh, vulnerable to illicit trades. And it turned out that a lot of these regions were also um, regions that were very remote, difficult to access, um, and where there was rampant like coca production and illegal gold mining. So a lot of illegal armed groups, what they do is they uh, take advantage of the fact that there is no government presence. There is no, there are, there's a lacking, like a grave lacking in basic services. And they basically um, just supplement you know, the kind of substitute um, institutionality. And um, in areas where it's very remote and difficult to access, you know, you have larger presence of these illegal groups who are exercising control over large swaths of territory. And, you know, there's, I mean, there's their um, combat and there's conflict and there, there's always this constant pressure, um, you know, from the government against the illegal groups and civilians uh, and farmers also caught in the crossfire. So it was really eye-opening because um, you really get a sense that, you know, in the cities, um, and especially after working um, in like the defense and security sector, um, you always got a sense that you always thought like, you know, they're the enemy, you know, they're, they're out there, they're the enemy. And, and many of them, I guess many of them are, and they are doing illegal things, but it's not necessarily um, because they're bad people. It's because they're, they lack access to a number of things. And because historically the Colombian government has failed to actually deliver those basic services. So it's kind of like a, a tricky situation because um, you think like who has, who's right here, you know? Mm -hmm. you know is, it, is it right for them not to grow coca if they feel like that's the only thing that they can do, you know? 
or are they going to grow coffee that they have no one to sell to, you know, and which is paid, you know, at sea market price in many of these remote regions. So, um, you know, it was, it was really interesting to, to see like the dynamic and, and a conflict zone is also, um, it's kind of interesting to see that they're actually communities, you know, communities are at the, at the core of all of this, you know, uh, collective, the sense of the collective, you know, a group of people mm-hmm. working together, whether it, whether it's to transport, um, a sick person from, you know, 14 hours through the mountains via, uh, with a hammock, you know, which I've heard of about that, you know, or if it's, you know, waiting for the, to cross the river when it's in winter time and rivers overflowing, you know, and, and, um, you know, like those are, are vulnerable groups of people, vulnerable communities to, you know, um, persons who have a lot of resources, a lot of money, a lot of capital, and who can, in a way, influence a lot of uh, the economies that, that exist out there. Mm-hmm. So you travel to these uh, zones and you found like coffee in all of them? No. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I, as I worked on this project, it was really interesting because as I mentioned, I, I didn't necessarily want to be in Colombia and I kind of lost heart a bit. And then I found myself just kind of doing what I had to do to provide for my family, even if it meant uh, living in Bogota and remaining away from them for a certain period of time. Um, and so as I traveled, I interviewed more and more farmers uh, cocoa farmers, papaya farmers, passion fruit farmers, coffee farmers. And I started to hear certain, a lot of very com- common, th- uh, a lot of common things, um, you know, in all of their, in all of their stories, you know, which is lack of access, lack of government presence, um, you know, lack of opportunity, like a, a like a very profound motivation to actually transform their livelihoods and to make something out of themselves. You know, there, you really found out that I really learned that they weren't any different than me. Mm -hmm. You know, I will have a family. I want to raise my family. I want to raise my kids. I want to give them the best possible education, have access to healthcare um, and just do my job so I can, you know, raise my, raise my family, you know? And, um, and so you know, it was, it was interesting. It was interesting to see how in all of their stories, I started to notice that like my father, I felt like my father was talking to me more and more, you know, he was so present in all those stories because it wasn't news to me to hear these stories. I've heard, I'd heard it before through, through his stories and through my family's stories, you know, and you, I started to think like, you know, these are stories that happened um, in rural Colombia 50 years ago or in 1950, mm-hmm. you know, almost 60 years ago now. And a lot of these situations and a lot of these communities are still being affected the same way. 
-hmm. you know, in the 21st century. You know, it's just unacceptable. It was unacceptable for me to, it was really difficult to process. And it was, it actually made me a bit angry, to be, to be honest. Like, uh, to think that so much time had passed and I'd grown up in D.C., in Virginia and in Bogota and all this. And, and, and all the while, like, uh, these communities are just, you know, they have no electricity, no running water. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I started to, um, I met this one gentleman. His name is Omar Jimenez. And he was actually really influential. A lot of things were influential in me creating Cosecha Traders, but Omar Jimenez was really influential because he's a guy who was from Briseño, Antioquia, which is considered a conflict zone. And again, a conflict zone is, is basically one of these prioritized uh, areas by the Colombian government um, in which they're going to pre uh, intervene with more like energy and more, they're going to be more emphatic about their intervention. Right. And he was displaced from his farm um, when all of the violence broke out in his town and he went to Medellin and he lived in, in Medellin with his family, basically peddling and, and traffic lights you know, with the stoplights or whatever. And um, he did that for four years. And he's like, you know what, this, I'm done with this life. You know, we're not making any progress here. I'm going to go back to my town. I don't care what happens to me, but I'm going to grow coffee like I used to when I was a kid. So he went back to his town and lo and behold, he bought a farm with the money he'd saved up. And he... Uh, grew coffee. Now, with through the intervention or th through this program's assistance, um, he was able to raise his cupping score from an 82 to an 87 in six months. Wow. And he had a very small coffee farm, which was, you know, one to two hectares of, of, of land, but he was putting on some really good coffee. So I felt so compelled with his story and I understood his story uh, because of my own family history story to a degree um, that I said, you know what, I'm going to take some of your coffee to, to DC and I'm going to try to connect you with a, with a coffee shop. I didn't even know what a roastery was back then, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just brought some of his samples and I said, look, here's some, here's some roasted coffee. And I went to a roastery. <laughs> I was like, here's some roasted coffee uh, from a farmer in Colombia. And they were like, you know what? We, we won't even like brew that here. That's not our coffee. We're a roastery. We roast the coffee. We need the green bean. And I was like, what is a green bean? You know? And so I came back to Colombia and I tried to connect him with other importers um, without any type of economic interest behind this or any idea that I was going to create Cosecha Traders. And I tried importer after importer and I never got responses. I got one response that was like, um, you know, we appreciate your email. Um, we're going to try to like connect, but you know, we have a large volume uh, of producers reaching out to us in Colombia. I was like, okay, that makes sense. But just never, nothing ever materialized. So I thought to myself, like, you know, it's kind of ridiculous that I'm, you know, trying to tell this story and communicate the story about 
Don Omar Jimenez, uh, a producer who'd been displaced, chose to live licitly amidst all this uh, danger, you know, for him, for his family. And, you know, I'm trying so hard to, to tell this story. It's like, I think I'm just going to do this, do this myself. So I also found that, you know, there are so many smallholder farmers, just like Don Omar, that are, you know, they lack access to markets. A lot of, a lot of these producers don't know that specialty coffee is a thing, mm-hmm. you know? So there is a huge opportunity in Colombia to work with these most vulnerable producers, these smallholder farmers in these different regions of the country, which are also strategic for, um, you know, all of the efforts for, to achieve peace, you know? So I chose to create Cosecha Traders, which is a, a company, it's a social impact enterprise, um, which aims to help smallholder farmers in vulnerable regions of Colombia. Mm-hmm. Not what, specifically. What, what year did you start the company? I started in two, two and a half years ago. Wow. I'd say you probably did so much since then. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when, I was on, when I was on this development project, um, although I was speaking to many producers, I also worked, I had the privilege and honor to work with the professionals that I worked, I worked with. You know, my colleagues were amazing. And I say that um, not because they were able to put a spreadsheet together and do a nice presentation and all of that, but many of, the produ- many of the, my coworkers or several of my coworkers were victims of conflict. And they were all, uh, the majority of them were from remote, a lot of these remote rural communities that the program was implementing its activities in. So um, I also learned that a lot of the mid-level to higher-level uh, executives on, or decision-makers on the program were, had worked uh, almost by choice in conflict zones for the last 30, 30 years or so. So they were in a region of the country called Magdalena Medio, um, which was really contested you know, maybe 20, 25 years back. Um, and they had some of their colleagues had been killed, uh, you know, and they've lost their friends, but they've always, they've made a commitment to themselves and to their communities, to the country, to work together to foster peace. So um, seeing them, also really uh, was, was really influential in creating Cosecha Traders, you know, because I also understand that in the development world, you know, projects last five years or two years or three years or six months even. And then sometimes it's difficult to have a continuation from one project to the next and kind of bring those, keep continue support for those associations that you helped in the first phase. And then, transform that into a second phase, you know, and a new contractor comes in and just has a completely different take on what development is or what an intervention should be. And so it kind of, uh, 
interrupts, you know, these processes that need to be, in the end, they need to be generational, you know. So um, our, our company, Kosuchi Traders, aims to create a process, you know. Mm. We, we want to support producers, but we, we also want to f- create this process where we're going to um, support these communities with, with time or in time. Yeah, you have more control over each phase mm-hmm. rather than stopping and going on to, you know, taking on someone else's company and like interrupting it and restarting from the beginning, right? Yes. Um, right. And, and it's also better for the producers, you know, because while there hasn't been presence or there hasn't been some type of institution that has given some some sort of support to them, you know, for like historically, you know, you, you can support them by targeting and um, really focusing, hyper-focusing on a certain group of producers that can then generate a multiplying effect. Mm-hmm. And then from you, know, you, I've learned about these indi- uh, indigenous producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something I don't think everyone really knows too much about until you showed me about these indig- indigenous producers. How did you like connect with them? And then uh, how did you decide that this is like one of the groups that should be focused on? Well, I think that's, that's a good question because um, I've always been very interested in indigenous cultures mm-hmm. and the way that they see the world and just nature and, you know, the way that they produce I mean, these are cultures that have lived in, in Colombia for centuries, you know, even before the Spanish were, had arrived here, the Europeans. So um, these cultures know about their land. You know, they know the soil. And so they have these millennial techniques that they use to farm their, their crops. And so I work with indigenous producers in, in central Cauca, which are actually from like the um it's the misak community or guambiano community in spanish misak is in their uh in their language um they're from the high altitude environments you know 2000 meters and above and so they're very they were very used to growing like uh, livestock cattle dairy, well, dairy um they would do potato farming um, and a number of different crops that you find at altitudes. And then as this, things have changed over the years in Colombia, and as conflict has adjusted you know, the way that people live and where people live, a lot of them have migrated to lower altitudes. Mm-hmm. And they've started to farm crops that are considered like more like lower altitude for, uh, crops, which are coffee, um, corn, um, some legumes or like beans and things like that. And so what they do is they trade with one another um, because the community at the higher altitude doesn't necessarily have the ones that are at the bottom. So at lower altitude, so they kind of like trade um, between one another. And, you know, it's just really interesting to see how they apply all of this like 
ancestral knowledge to like specialty coffee. Mm-hmm. You know, we're supporting some, a group of farmers uh, in central Cauca that are producing specialty coffee for the first time, mm-hmm. you know, and they've had like, some really, really, really good coffee. What, what kind yeah. of education or knowledge did you have to bring to them about specialty coffee? A lot of it has to do with like what the market or the interna- international market is looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, a roaster like yourself um, perceives coffee in a, certain, in a certain way. You know, like you look at the varietals, you look at the altitudes, you look at uh, the sweetness of the coffee. Uh, you know, when we cup coffee, uh, in specialty coffee, uh, as you know, it's, you know, we, we evaluate different criteria, you know? And so um, in doing that, you know, the producers don't necessarily know what those criteria are, right? Mm-hmm. And it's also talking to them about, you know, a lot of it has to do with motivation. It's motivational. Mm-hmm. It's coaching them, really. It's coaching them. And it's really like, look, you're doing, you're doing really, you're, you're make, producing really good coffee. And, you know, some of them are skeptical about the market because they're so used to kind of like being taken advantage of, you know, and just offering their coffee for C market price, you know, while their coffee has an 87 point or 88 point score, Mm -hmm. you know, it's almost like they don't necessarily know what they've got. Right. They don't know what we try to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have, they're really proud of their culture. They're really proud of their, their culture. They have a really strong identity, but it's, it's really challenging to kind of like understand that culture and then have that translate into like this, uh, accessing this international market, you know? So I try to, we, we try to bring like, you know, technical uh, skills to them in terms of like cupping, and understanding uh, the market, like what roasters are looking for, providing feedback whenever our roasters uh, do roast a sample, even if they, they do want to purchase the coffee or they don't, we try to do our best to get that feedback back so we can share it with them. And then, you know, they, that is actually a huge, um, I mean, you don't think about it, but it's actually a huge um, opportunity that, for them to learn and to improve. You know, mm-hmm. so now, how did you have any problems getting? I know they they they've been growing coffee for centuries. How, did you did you have any problems getting their coffee to port and then from port to here? I'm sure there were we challenges didn't. there. We didn't, um, but we do not not with them specifically, mm-hmm. but um, we do work with a, a group of Afro-Colombian producers. Mm-hmm. in northern Cauca and they're basically our our project from the start from the inception of cosecha traders I mean they they basically started at the same time we did mm-hmm. you know I mean albeit they've been growing coffee for their families have been growing coffee for four or five generations you know mm-hmm. but they're a, a, a group of about 25 Afro-Colombians that um, are also a lot of them are actually uh, informal gold miners, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, so these are, these are some really tough dudes, 
um, tough, like very tough mountain men. Mm -hmm. I always think of them as like mountain men. You know, a lot of them, I think some of them have been to the city, to Cali, which is an hour and 15 minutes away. Uh -huh. They must have been to the city at least a handful in their whole lives, a handful of times in their, their whole lives. They, they, they don't like to leave their farm. Mm -hmm. So what, what we, we, uh, we had a, a lot of challenges um, actually importing their coffee because, you know, we started a, a couple of years ago with them and it was just communicating and kind of trying to uh, share as much knowledge as we could about um, specialty coffee and what people were looking for and, you know, the fermentation and the drying and all of this. And then them kind of like complementing that with their like expertise because I mean, they have a lot of experience growing coffee or producing coffee. And then it was, you know, storing the coffee. And then it was, you know, tweaking things about uh, the humidity levels, which is, you know, nine to 12% to export uh, humidity level to export coffee from Colombia, but we wanted to get it um, even lower so then it could stabilize and, and bring out all of those, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the sugars mm -hmm. in, in the coffee and make it last a bit longer, you know, for, for the voyage. So, um, so, you know, they live in a very contested um, uh, municipality and it's, it was really challenging to actually get the coffee down from the farm because the roads that were really poor. And I remember the first question they asked me when I visited them was, are you going to bring the, pick up the coffee yourself? You know, and I was just out there to kind of like introduce myself. And, uh -huh. and it was kind of like, that was the first question they had for me. It was like, uh -huh. No sugar coating, no nothing. Like, are you going to pick it up yourself? Cause it's just like so difficult. Uh -huh. It really is difficult. It's a big to, challenge for them. So they want to just overcome that right. uh, thing. And, and also because they're, they're kind of like a, an island of specialty coffee, you know, among the sea of illicit crops, mm -hmm. you know. And so they don't really want to bring attention to themselves, um, bringing down like all this coffee at mm -hmm. once uh, for export, you know, especially when others have already sold it their coffee, their neighbors have sold it at like sea market price. Mm -hmm. They kind of want to keep a low profile. And then they brought down each bag like one at a time. And then finally we ended up um, taking it to, to the mill. Mm -hmm. And actually the mill, um, the day that we took coffee to the mill, um, there was actually combat in their town. Oh, and goodness. I remember the, the, the news, I remember listening to the radio that day as, I, as we were driving to the mill about how all of the press and all the talk shows, all the radio shows were in uproar because a sergeant was killed in, in combat, a sergeant in, in the Colombian army, you know? And, you know, it was kind of funny because, you know, nobody heard about, there was this big discussion about how, you know, you know, the, we signed the peace agreement with this former guerrilla group and we're supposed to be in, at peace now. And we're, now there's combat again in Cauca, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, everybody was focused on that and nobody noticed that these two producers from, from this community in their town, in that very town, 
um, we're going to export their coffee, their micro lots for the first time. Mm -hmm. you know? So those are the things that you, you kind of try to understand um, as symbolic as they can be. Um, but it's also like a motivation to keep working and keep moving forward with, with them. You know, there's a chance of progress because they're absolutely amidst the conflict. There's still people moving on. We, um, we were stopped about 10 minutes from the mill by the police, by the transit police. Mm -hmm. And he was basically like, you know, your paperwork for your car is out of, out of, you know, it's outdated and we need to, you know, tow your, tow your car with the coffee along, along with it. Oh no. And these gentlemen had woken up in the morning. They woke up at 3.30 in the morning. And they'd been driving from their town, you know, uh -huh. uh, all the way through northern Cauca and through Valle del Cauca, uh, all the way to the top part of Valle del Cauca to drop it off at the mill. And we're here 10 minutes away from, from the mill. And they wanted to, like, take the coffee from us. They'd take the whole... <laughs> truck and I, I thought I just I'm gonna I'm going to ignore this transit police officer uh -huh. who said this uh -huh. he's like when he said that I was like there's no way this guy is gonna take this coffee from us uh -huh. so I told him and I was like look if you these gentlemen are from a very uh, uh, remote region of Cauca <clears throat> if you confiscate their coffee and you confiscate their the truck that they're transporting this coffee in, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're, you're not going to let them uh, export their coffee for the first time. So mm -hmm. the gentleman who was driving the car didn't know that this paperwork was outdated. Mm -hmm. Like, um, but if you do let them go through, then they're going to be the first ones in their community to export coffee. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, then we're going to demonstrate to the, to their neighbor, and to the rest of their community that illicit livelihood is possible mm -hmm. you know and the guy as I explained this to him just honestly and just uh -huh. kind of told him straight up what it was um, he's like you know what I'm not going to do anything just please get to where you're going immediately and then update your paperwork like you can go oh. so he let us he let us go to the mill um, and we ended up exporting their coffee. Uh huh. What a world yeah. of relief. Yes. Someone I felt was actually, someone was actually being reasonable. Yeah. I, know. <laughs> I felt the tingle like go to like the tips of my fingers. Uh huh. You know, after I'd, I'd spoken with that, that officer. But I mean, after two years and a half of work mm -hmm. or, or two years of work, you know, it's just, it couldn't have possibly gone down to like those last 10, 10 minutes. So uh -huh. that, was, that would have been too much. Yeah, my hair was that actually standing much. up when you're telling me this story. I was like, <laughs> right there? Oh, I would have done anything <laughs> like that. Uh, right. Yeah. Like right. if he wasn't going to listen to your reason, what was going right. to be the next step then? <laughs> right. No, it would have been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't even want to think about that. Yeah. I, know, I can't even fathom. Yeah. Yeah. So now. Uh, you guys have been around about two and a half years. Uh, a lot of things have changed, right? 
Uh, especially mm-hmm. just the beginning of this year here in the United States, and I'm sure in Colombia too. Uh, let's start with like the COVID-19 pandemic. How's it affected Colombia and the, the coffee trade in your region? Yeah, um, well, COVID has affected like it has all over the world. I mean, it's impacted so many people in Colombia. The, the country has been on... Um, at the beginning of the program, you mentioned that we spoke one time before. Mm-hmm. And since we spoke, um, I think um, we're at past 100 days now, 100, mm-hmm. about 110 days of national lockdown. Mm-hmm. Things have begun to ease up <clears throat> and cases have been, um, you know, the curve has been flattened to a degree. But, you know, a lot of people... Um, you get tired of being on lockdown and the government's been pretty good in my opinion mm-hmm. <clears throat> of letting things like reopen to, you know, to a, a minimum, you know, mm-hmm. at least. And so, um, but you do see a lot of, a lot of groups and communities just kind of like rebelling against the lockdown and getting out and, you know, having like, soccer games and soccer tournaments you know that's mm-hmm. something that's happened in the in this last month since we spoke oh okay when we spoke when we spoke that had not happened mm-hmm. that had not happened but since then it's just kind of like it's like wow it's like really a long time now mm-hmm. and then and then um you know the coffee sector um the producers have had a lot of, had a lot of challenges too because um you know, at the beginning of the harvest this, this year, which is between, it was between April, May, June, you know, it's still kind of happening now in some parts, the higher altitudes, especially, but, um, you know, the markets were closed in the U S so then roasters weren't roasting as much. Mm -hmm. And because they weren't roasting as much, they weren't going through inventory. And so they couldn't buy more coffees, Mm -hmm. right. For the most part. And so, and so, um, and so um, as, as that happened and as things started to open up, um, you know, you start seeing producers or buyers buying more, um, but also um, producers coming down in turn. Like they would, the way they did it in some of the communities is that um, they kind of like took turns, you know, certain days of the week, producers from one community could come down into town and sell their coffee um, and then they go back up and then the guys from the next community come down and then they take turns that way mm-hmm. you know but it's really it slows down the process because a lot of these uh, communities are you know there a lot of these towns have like you know some of them have like hundreds of communities you know so it's it's been really challenging to 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 for the producers to get their coffee down. And then, you know, they've, they've taken a lot of precautions in terms of picking. Um, there hasn't been as much migration between from one region to the next, although it has occurred in some parts of the country um, to kind of like mitigate the spread of the virus, you know? So a lot of communities um, and the indigenous communities are probably the best at this because what they do is they work together as a group and they kind of like take turns picking their coffees and processing on each farm. And then they, you know, travel, you know, then they, 
then they kind of like, you know, go from one farm to the next doing that. Uh, they're helping each other's um, farms out. Right. Mm -hmm. But they've, they've also done that in other parts of the country, you know, to keep um, migrant workers from coming in and kind of like potentially infecting or having a spread in, in these rural communities, which have very limited like medical or health infrastructure, mm -hmm. you know, um, then, I mean, that would have been, it would be devastating. It's potentially devastating for, mm -hmm. for those, for those communities to, when, to get affected. Okay. Now, uh, so what are the options right now? I know coffee's been difficult to uh, open back up, but here in the U.S., uh, you see some of it coming back soon? I do. <clears throat> Even though it's been a little slower and it's been more difficult to operate, um, the ports have not closed, and mm -hmm. coffee is being exported from Colombia in large mm -hmm. amounts. Mm -hmm. I think there would be a, there will be a reduction in the amounts of coffee because a lot of producers will be more reluctant to venture into like urban centers or to town mm -hmm. to actually um, sell their coffees because of fear, you know, and, and, you know, it's in these tight knit communities, it's kind of like word gets around and there's a lot of like rumor, mm -hmm. you know? And so they're like, Oh, you know, oh, like yesterday I heard, um, a story of a producer from, from our, our Q grader, actually. He's in Northern Bahia, Cauca. He told me that there, there are now six, I spoke to him last week and there were no cases. Mm -hmm. And this week there are six cases. Mm -hmm. And one of the infected persons was, worked in the mayor's office, who traveled to Cali for a, a doctor's appointment. But he told me that she actually came to Cali to get a, a lipo suction done and that got infected. So it's kind of like you hear a lot of things like that and you're like, what? You know, <laughs> you know, but, but, it, but then all town gossip. Exactly. There's it a moves lot of faster that, so than the internet. It gives exactly. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's more than, it's better than fiber optics, it is. <laughs> you know, but uh, you, you hear a lot of that um, in, in towns and, so people, they hear that when they hear that kind of thing, it's like, oh, maybe it, I'm not going to go to town. Maybe I'll just uh, wait for this to pass and sell my coffee, you know, at a later date, or maybe I'll just won't sell it or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, that that's also affected um, communities out there. Uh, so, what else has happened since uh, since COVID? Last time we spoke about like being quarantined. <clears throat> Uh, now the the U.S. is having all these protests, that get, uh, mostly because of what happened recently about like with uh, a black man being killed in uh, in well uh, different states. Has that mm -hmm. reached your shores over there? News of it has mm -hmm. for sure, and everything that happens in the U S is, is basically news in Colombia. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the U S it's, it's amazing to think like how powerful, like the, everything that happens in the U S can influence mm -hmm. developing countries, especially Latin America, which is countries in Latin America, which are in the neighborhood in the end, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but 
Yeah, when we last spoke, uh, George Floyd was still alive. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah. been, uh, it's been really hard to process as an American overseas and kind of like seeing things on the news as it comes in on Facebook um, with friends that I have that kind of like advocate for Black Lives Matter and others that advocate for Blue Lives Matter mm -hmm. or advocate for uh, All Lives Matter, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's been really hard to understand everything and seeing everything that's happening um, because of race, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, and it's actually an interesting perspective to see this from Colombia because Colombia, I mean, we're all Latinos here, mm -hmm. you know, whether you're Afro-Colombian or, you know, of European descent or indigenous descent, we're all Latinos, we're all Colombians. Mm -hmm. That makes us Latinos. So it's kind of like, you know, even within Colombia, there's a, a great deal of racism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so it's kind of crazy to, to think about everything that happened that's going on in the U.S. Because, you know, my, my take on it is that, you know, I, I kind of see things, I still think, see things as like a, the fir a first generation American, like the, the son of two immigrants. Mm -hmm. who, you know, it's kind of like you know, to think that um, I would be discriminated against or as I have been in the past, you know. Um, and then to think that, that all of this is still going on, you know. Mm -hmm. um, ever since I was a kid, things haven't changed all that much. It's, you know, it, it makes me want to be more vocal about it. Mm -hmm. for sure uh, because there are there are those that out there that think that racism doesn't exist you know and mm -hmm. you know and it's just kind of crazy man it's just kind of crazy mm -hmm. and i i don't it's it's a it's something that i i have to admit that it's affected me a mm -hmm. bit to see that how um how all of these uh killings have ha have occurred Mm -hmm. You know, it's just such a, it's just an entirely, it's just another conversation that we could have uh, entirely on, you know, on, on another episode or whatever. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, there are so many things that you take for granted in the U.S. You know, the opportunities that you have um, to earn an honest living, to earn in dollars, mm -hmm. to... Um, have security at home. And yet there are so many people think, thinking that everything is so, um, so fragile, you know, mm -hmm. you know, it, it raises a lot of questions in my mind about like, you know, where is American democracy going? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to become too political because I can, I, I can, I can be political in a lot of my comments, <laughs> but <laughs> Given that you grew up around uh, D.C. and everything like that, you definitely see the where the environment is. Mm -hmm. But do you see a little bit, you know, like in the beginning of this, you said that Colombia had two sort of uh, conflict parties. You said sort of like right. a conservative and then like a more of a liberal one. Yeah. Do you see like a sort of a mirror image of what's going on right now? In the Thank United you. States? Thank you for that question. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that question because I am a firm believer that if you are willing to listen, 
And if you're smart, you will learn some, you can learn something from everyone. It doesn't matter if they're the person who packs your groceries at the, at the grocery store, mm -hmm. or if it's a lawyer, or if it's, you know, a Senator, you know, you can learn from everyone if you have take the time to listen, right. And to mm -hmm. really understand it. Right. And just like that, I believe in that. I feel like the U United States has an opportunity to learn from Colombia mm -hmm. because Colombia is in the end fought a fratricidal war. It hasn't been declared a civil war here, but it's an internal conflict, mm -hmm. you know, which is in inflamed by the international drug trade and mm -hmm. gold mining trades, right? But it's an internal conflict in which Colombians are killing Colombians, whether you're from a rural community, you know, or from a, from a inner city uh, neighborhood in Bogota, you know, Colombians are killing Colombians. And that's gone on, not just for the last 60 years, but before then in the political violence that existed between conservatives and liberals. And it's kind of like when you see what's happening in the US with how polarized the country is mm -hmm. um, and the way that Colombia is actually right now, it's like really polarized, just as polarized as the US, you know, mm -hmm. between those who advocate for peace and those who don't, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like you see a lot of parallels that um, the U.S. can understand. It's kind of like, like the U.S., I don't think the U.S. would ever turn into like a, a conflict like Colombia, but maybe it could turn into like a, a, something like a race war, mm -hmm. you know, where, you know, people are just pitted against one another. Mm -hmm. And it, it will take that war or that, conflict, whatever it may be, whatever form it takes for people to understand that we're all American, mm -hmm. right? That it doesn't matter if you're black, Latino, Filipino, or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, whatever your background, if you're born in the United States, you're American, mm -hmm. you know? So in the end, we're just fighting among one another. Mm -hmm. And it's really tough for me to, to sit here and, and think that you know, Colombians are doing that and now Americans are doing it, you mm -hmm. know, and potentially could, it could escalate. I mean, I feel like it is escalating. There are things that have happened in the last couple of weeks, you know, especially with after George Floyd's death. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then you see news about um, this couple in, in Louisiana, brand, or I think St. Louis brandishing weapons, mm -hmm. um, you know, to kind of like stave off protesters or whatever. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there. I just saw it on the news. Mm -hmm. But those are images that are like so like, they're so raw. And it's mm -hmm. like, I can't believe that this is happening in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. You know, like, don't we have a better sense of like, where we need to be as a country? I thought we were much more developed in our thinking, mm -hmm. much more developed economically and much more developed in so many ways mm -hmm. that we're now like brandishing and like a, you know, semi-automatic weapons at one another yeah. on the doorstep of our, of our mansion. Mm -hmm. You know, I just don't understand, man. It's just really hard for me to process. Yeah. Dramatic difference from just like a few months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Since we last spoke, a lot of things have changed for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure we're going to have like a few other topics to talk about 
on top of coffee, mm -hmm. what's going on in Colombia, what's going on in the U.S. Where do you see uh, cosecha in the next few months, though? Well, as of right now, we're, we're working hard around the, this pandemic to source coffee. Mm -hmm. And it's, we're currently in the buying process because we are in harvest. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually expecting about 12 or 15 samples uh, in today, which I'm really excited to. It's been a, like a long, um, long process because we're doing a lot of things by snail mail you know, like mm -hmm. physical mail. So, um, you know, while you send the samples out, you do the analysis, then they send them back roasted and then we cup virtually mm -hmm. with their, with their Q grader. And then it's, you know, getting back to the producers, the producers are like, do you have any news for me? We need to sell this coffee, you know, let me know quickly as soon as you can. So it's kind of like, it's like you're trying to move as quickly as possible, but everything else is going really slow. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's painstaking, right? So mm -hmm. we're in the process of, of selecting coffees for this harvest. And then we expect to, to make a shipment, another, another shipment um, at the end of July or at least, or at the latest in the first week of August. Um, um, and then, you know, just in the, in the medium term, I, I really aim to, to focus on our mission um, and get news about our company and the impact that we're, that we're delivering um, in these rural communities out. Mm -hmm. um, I want to communicate it and really talk about some of our producers. Um, for instance, for example, like the Afro-Colombian producers. Mm -hmm. You know, after everything that happened with George Floyd and all of this Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. this, like, this awareness, which I think is totally healthy for for the United States, you know, it's almost like I, I really want to, it's like the time has come now. I've been trying to, to promote our Afro-Colombian producers for mm -hmm. like the last two and a half years, three years, uh -huh. you know, but now it's like, it's time for this to actually turn into something because, you know, the idea of African-American roasters or white American roasters or any American roasters to support Afro-Colombian mm -hmm. producers during these during this period, I think would be really really compelling, mm -hmm. and it would really help us um, tell our story through our actions mm -hmm. about what we're trying to accomplish. Uh -huh. You know, yeah. So I see us doing a lot of a lot more in terms of uh, communicating like what we're doing on the ground, mm -hmm. and also um, just you know, just you know, as you know, um, just working really hard as entrepreneurs do mm -hmm. um, and social entrepreneurs at that to, to achieve your mission. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So would you be able to share uh, with the listeners about your website, how they could uh, hear about your work? Uh, yeah. Well, give them your website, your, your social media handles. We're, we're working on our, our website at the moment mm -hmm. and we hope to have it out within the next couple of months. Mm -hmm. Um, and we have an Instagram account at the moment, which mm -hmm. is at cosecha underscore traders mm -hmm. and cosecha is spelled C O S E C H A underscore traders. Mm -hmm. And that's basically where you can find a lot of, uh, snippets and pictures and stuff about 
our coffee sourcing adventures and the producers we work with, the different regions. Um, and, you know, we expect, we always expect, we're always looking to improve um, our Instagram account and our way to communicate like a lot of, a lot of the things that we're doing in the field. Mm -hmm. uh, also, another thing that we want to promote out there, uh, you'll see his information on our website when we put this uh, episode out there. But another thing that we want to promote out there is uh, sort of a project that me and Luis wanted to put together was create a documentary about uh, these uh, coffee producers, right? So we'd like to definitely keep talking about that. If anyone's an inch is interested uh, in being a sponsor of this, please reach out to us. Uh, we want to showcase and also tell the story of these coffee farmers that, you know, Luis has been talking about and bring it to light and the, the work that they've been doing in, in uh, growing coffee and sort of not going back to the textbook of growing illegal drugs. They're trying to legitimize themselves and they're sort of fighting a battle and it's, you know, they've been in there for centuries. So I know they'll survive, but it takes a little bit more for, to make it easier. And we want to bring awareness in, in the work they're doing in coffee and uh, legitimizing their community. So if you want to sponsor us or uh, be part of it, please reach out to us, uh, shoot us an email. At least we'll we'll talk about that project more. I think on uh, another episode, we got so much stuff to talk about. Yeah, man, we do. We <laughs> definitely do. I look yeah. forward to talking about all of them. Yes. So thank you everybody for listening, Luis. Thank you for taking your morning uh, with us and telling us your story. We're gonna have mo more stories to tell, and that's definitely one of the things I love about coffee in that how we met and how. Uh, we get to hear each other's stories, like that story about that uh, vehicle getting pulled over and almost getting their full uh, stock of coffee taken away is like amazing. And I'm glad it, it turned out well. And without that, I guess we won't be able to taste your first cups of coffee. Uh, another right. thing is one of his, uh, we'll be sharing one of his uh, uh, lots coming out soon at Black Six Coffee. Uh, you just got to communicate a little bit more on like about the, where it came from. Right. We're going to put that on our website too about that coffee. So stay tuned and stay tuned for more stories from Luis in Colombia. Definitely. Yeah. Joseph, man, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, it really was a pleasure and, and thank you so much for the opportunity to share a bit about uh, my story and Cosecha Traders' story. Yeah. It's not the end of it. We're going to be doing a lot more. Okay, cool. cool. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Have a good day, man. All right, Joseph. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us in our interview with Luis Carlos Sosa from Cosecha Coffee Traders. We hope his story has inspired you in some way. If you want to find out more about his company, you can find him on Instagram and follow them at cosecha underscore traders. I hope our podcast has intrigued your imagination as we hear the different stories of the people we meet as we navigate the coffee world doing humanitarian work as military veterans. Stay tuned for our next episode as we interview Donald Darby, a former paramedic and now pediatric ICU nurse. He tells us his story of dealing with COVID in the ER 
and within his family and also how he's used nutrition and herbs to keep himself and his family healthy during the pandemic.